Hello and welcome to the first table of bollocks of 2024. Here we are back in Esper's cockpit and we couldn't be more nautical today because the wind has picked up and yes. we've got the sound of the wind blowing through all the rigging of the boats which you may, if you're watching this, can see over our shoulders. Uh, that's Marina Del Rey and uh, we've got uh, the dinghy and the kayak hanging off the back making lots of little ripply sounds and all the usual traffic buzzing past so it's just great to be back here isn't it? It really is, it's, we're on the water, we're around the table of bollocks and we couldn't be happier. So what are we talking about today Elizabeth? Yeah we're going to reply to something that was written on Discord on our Discord club uh, from Simon Vand and this is what he says, I'd be interested to learn from you how you planned your cruising in Southeast Asia. To me it sounds like a giant puzzle. And I don't think he's the only one. I think a lot of people get confused, don't you, about, about this area. So he says, can you talk about one, long-term planning, two, short-term planning, and three, what things you research before you visit a new, sometimes very remote place and how you find that information. So one and two, we'll talk about in a bit more detail in a minute, but first of all, how do we research and who, where, what do we research before we go to particularly remote places? Hello, I'm Liz. And I'm Jamie. Welcome to Follow the Boat, in which we discuss what it's really like to give it all up to live on a boat. And go travelling around the world. We've been doing it since 2006, and we're still at it. Each week we talk about our latest YouTube video. And about boats, sailing, travel, or anything else which floats into our heads. And if you leave a comment we like, we'll give you an answer and a name check. Peace and, and fair winds. Simon is absolutely correct. It is one great big puzzle. And I think to anyone who hasn't been to Southeast Asia, either by land or by sea, it's quite a sort of mysterious place that, uh, well, I think the first thing is, is actually trying to conceptualise what is Southeast Asia. Because yeah. It's, it's vast, isn't it? Yes, it is. I think particularly uh, for people on the west side of the world, so that's you know Europe and, um, and the Americas, I think perhaps our Aussie friends have got a much better idea of this area because they, you know, Bali is their sort of little playground and they know uh, perhaps Thailand as well. So they're a bit more familiar, but to the rest of us, it's really a foreign foreign, far away place, isn't it? Yeah, can I just say, by the way, I, I, I didn't realise how close we are to Australia. Yes. Being, being here in Lombok, in the, uh, the Lesser Sunda Islands, they're called. So that's Bali, Lombok, and the, all the islands that run sort of east to west. And Australia is actually only, what, 200 miles away or so? It's, it's not far at all. You can get your boat there fairly quickly. You can fly pretty quickly. Mm. So um, a bit like for the Brits, the Mediterranean is a quick hop and a skip to a great playground. I think it's the same for our Aussie friends as well. Yeah. So first of all, though, before we go on talking about the planning and, and the great puzzle and how you get through it, um, you did ask Simon about the research. Um, so it's all the usual things, you know, looking cruising guides, looking the world cruising routes, go online, look up the area. So you want to look obviously for the destinations, look at the bits that interest you most um, and where, find out where it is you want to go. There's Noonsight, obviously, we always say this, a lot of people use Noonsight. The one thing I would suggest is you get onto Facebook if you're not already and you join the Sail Southeast Asia Facebook group. We're members of it. Everyone who sails here pretty much is a member of that group and many of those people have been here a long time and we've been here 10 years so have a lot of information and 
that information is updated daily. So get on, introduce yourself, say you're coming to the area and you want to know, you know, perhaps ask your first question. Yeah, well, you, you've jumped ahead because you asked me to do a tiny bit of research on the differences between cruising grounds. No, we're coming on to that. Uh, this is, first of all, just how do, you, how do you research it before you even get here? Oh, OK. So, uh, you know... We're, we're what, in sync as usual, aren't we? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you know, there are cruising guides and I tend, or pilot guides even, in, in some areas, if you're lucky, I tend to buy those before we go to that area. And they usually, obviously they've got all the anchorages and everything marked, but they usually have a whole lot of other interesting information. So, for instance, at the moment, being in Indonesia, there's a great cruising guide to Indonesia. And the front bit, sections and sections of it, tell you all about where and how to cruise around this area. So, you know, just use your general knowledge and get online and do the research that way. Mm -hmm. So you're going to tell us, before we start talking about long-term and short-term planning, you're going to tell us about the different cruising grounds. Yes. So I think, obviously, there are a lot of places in the world that are extremely popular for cruising. I guess the two main ones, of course, are the Caribbean and the Mediterranean. Uh, very popular, but also, of course, very busy. That's why we say come to Southeast Asia, because <laughs> there are far fewer boats here. And I have to say, they are it's vast, the, the cruising ground. Okay. What did you come up with? So... I did a little uh, Google Earth vector check and I covered just the areas of sea, so not the land. Right. Um, and the first one I looked at was Mediterranean, which really we define from anywhere east of the tip of Portugal, mm -hmm. um, all the way over east. Not quite as far as Syria. No, we wouldn't want to cruise there at the moment. Not at the think. moment. No, we almost did once upon yeah. a time. Turkey, um, though. And then sort of down towards towards the tip of uh, North Africa and the uh, square mileage, I have to get it up here. The square mileage is 570,000. That's square miles. Square miles. Not kilometres, not nautical miles. Yeah, just square miles, normal okay. miles. So that takes you up the uh, the Black Sea and uh, covers the whole of the Aegean as well. Oh, okay. So, I mean, and as we it, know, it, it's vast. You can spend the whole season just cruising around the Mediterranean. And, um, of course, we know many yachties who just base themselves there. So it's big. There's all those Greek islands, loads and loads of them, and mm. really good strong winds to sail there as well. Mm. But that pales into significance compared to the Caribbean. Right. Okay. And I was a bit generous here because I actually included the whole of the Caribbean Sea. So that takes you all the way down the east coast of Central America. Okay. Um, and I also included from the Bahamas down to the BVI. So yeah. essentially it's covering that whole area, including the whole of the Caribbean islands that we know and love, almost down to the tip of um, South Africa, uh, South America, sorry. Yeah. And that cruising ground totals, I don't know this is just an approximate, that 1.3 million square miles. Wow. wow. It, so it's bigger than the Mediterranean. Yeah. But that, of course, is the whole of the Caribbean Sea. Yes. Which is big. Yes. It's a big area. Yes. Um, so. What then, about Southeast Asia? There we go. So Southeast Asia, we're going to define as, and I, I guess we should help people who don't know it at all. Uh, if you know Sumatra, uh, you go up to the north of Sumatra and into the sea there, you've got something called the uh, Andaman Islands. Yeah, uh, part of India. Part of India, yeah. And then we go all the way across, all the way over across the top of Australia, not including Australia. So you're going east. Going east, all the way over to Papua New Guinea. Yeah. And all the way up to take in 
the Philippines, but I didn't include Japan. So okay. this is up to sort of the tip of Japan, but not including it. Yes. And again, this is only sailing sea area. This is not landmass. Okay. Have a guess. Go on, have a guess. Twice the Caribbean. More. Really? It's 3.5 million wow. square miles of cruising territory. That's why in 10 years, we've still only been to three countries. And yep. we still think there's another 10 years, another 100 years that we could sail for and Absolutely. not see the same thing twice. Yeah. So, okay. But, so, yeah, I was just going to say, of course, you know, it all sounds like unicorns and rainbows. But as we know, because this covers such a vast area, uh, it, it can be complicated. And I think this is what people like Simon are a little bit confused about, is how do you piece together all these different seas that you can sail in? How do you put it all together in a puzzle? Yeah, so there, there, there are Southeast Asia cruising guides that come in two parts, two, two books, enormous. Uh, very old now, I don't know how, whether they've been updated, and they take, you know, a few countries each. Um, we do it bit by bit. So you look at the bit you're going to, you find out about that. And then you look at the next bit, you find out about that. And we really have only cruised in Thailand, Malaysia and Indonesia. But Indonesia is massive, mm. isn't it? It stretches all the way from the west to almost, well, to all the way to the east. It defines... All of the breadth. Yeah, it defines yeah. the width of uh, Southeast yeah. Asia, yeah. Yeah. And it's so different, isn't it? It's like different countries. Yeah, um, and that's, of course, one of the beauties of cruising around this area are all these different countries, uh, sorry, different cultures within one country. Yeah. Uh, but, of course, you have the complications of uh, switching between countries. Yes. And as we're about to discuss, of course, the whole geography yes. and how the, the weather is affected by that. Yeah, so with the long-term planning, we really are looking at monsoons, trade winds, and where we are, whether we're north of the equator, on the equator, or south of the equator, because it's very different. Yes, and and, and that's place to place. and that's once you're in here. So mm. I guess to get here, you are pretty much defined by when you can cross the Pacific and when you can cross the Indian Ocean. Mm. So to get here, so mm. that's going to be your first definition if you're coming from outside. Mm. Let's assume they're here. Okay. Should we assume they've actually made their way to this part of the world? Yep. If you get here at the wrong time, you might be stuck somewhere for nearly a year waiting for the or six months or so before you can move on if you're not got the winds with you. Did you know that liking and subscribing on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts helps us to get noticed? Go on, give us a helping hand. So to make it a little more easy to digest, let's look at what's happened to us over the last year because we missed a window. And we are still in the same place as we were a year ago. I mean, we've done a lot in between those times. But because we missed the window, we are once again back here. So a year ago, we had got back in the water and we were at Madonna in northern Lombok. And we came down to the south where we are now and we decided to wait until uh, April, May when we would hit the southeast trades and head north towards Malaysia. So we had three months to kill. And so we took advantage of the westerlies, didn't we? That's right. And headed east over mm. all the way over to Flores to Komodo, as, as you know, if you've been watching our episodes, of course. Uh, we then turned around to come back and that's when we had our steering problems, which uh, we're currently talking about in our episode. So we came back because the winds changed, started mm. to come into our favour, didn't mm. they? 
but of course because we had to haul out yeah we missed them and and so they've switched around again now you could if you really wanted to poke your nose up at this time of year but i think it would be quite uncomfortable and i think more to the point and this is one of the problems with these areas especially going towards the equator is the unpredictability of the weather you yeah. know you might have a nice clear two-day window to get you half halfway up and then suddenly uh, those winds could kick in and you'd have a horrendous time so what i would say is that the last couple of months it's been transitional and we could have done it we could have done a hop here and a hop there but of course we didn't get back into the water until very recently but, and uh, actually i'd say up until yesterday yeah but you're only saying that with hindsight no we said it at the time well i did you ignored me but i did say at the time that i thought we could do it if we were prepared to hunker down and wait well i think that goes back to my point that uh if we'd done it when you'd said and we we got halfway up and as we know the winds have just turned yes yeah, so what's really interesting in light of this conversation is that there is quite a big transitional between the very definite seasons um, and that is when wind's doing all kinds of things and people do go they do sail in those in those weathers uh, down here in we're talking south of the equator so literally yesterday we woke up boat was facing another way checked on windy and bish bang overnight in fact that morning the winds changed and they are now most definitely northwesterly winds so we were in the northwesterly trade right now so absolutely pointless for us to do what we want to do mm. so here we are again and we will probably be leaving in april may but who knows it depends when the winds change uh, also we should mention of course is that we have the currents the influence of the currents. so i think we'll talk a little bit more about that but that is also something we have to consider uh, when passage planning. Yes. Now the opposite of what's just happened to us is what happened north of the equator. We were based in, in uh, Thailand and Malaysia for quite a while and there at the moment they have a north easterly which is a fantastic time of the year to be over there. Uh, it's dry, it's consistent, it's not blustery, it's not full of rain and nasty lightning like you get in, in the southwesterly. So great time at the moment to be in the northern hemisphere, particularly Thailand and Malaysia. Right, where we were supposed to be right now. Yes, <laughs> probably good in Philippines as well. Yes. Although the Philippines is another story because that's typhoons, but anyway. So yeah, so they've got, they've got the opposite to us. And over there, it all starts to change in sort of April, May, when the southwest monsoon starts blowing across the Indian Ocean and then it hits the northern part of this, uh, northern, northern hemisphere here, and you get the really nasty weather in. Coach, we should also just define where the equator is approximately. <laughs> it's basically, it's south of Singapore. So uh, Thailand and mainland Malaysia, or Peninsula Malaysia as it's called, and, uh, and actually the, the top of Borneo as well, that's all above um, the equator, north. so it's north equator. Yeah. So it changes, it's about 100, 200 miles south of Singapore, I think, approximately. Yeah, so it, it changes when you're in Indonesia, yeah. of course, because Indonesia is so vast. Mm. The equator, of course, is a whole different ball game, it's a different type of sailing. You never know what's going to happen at the equator. It could be nothing, it could be full on wind. So the equator is, um, you know, a rule unto itself and the uh, it's not something that we worry too much about. We worry more about the north and the southern, southern hemispheres. So that's, that's very general. 
So you, once you've got those, I'd write them down on a piece of paper or look in your cruising guide and it will show you the winds coming from northeast or coming from northwest or southeast or southwest, depending on where you are, and roughly the time of the year that those blow. So you use that as your framework to work out what you're going to do in a year or a long-term cruising plan if you want to go through the Asia and out the other side or whatever you want to do. That is your first port of call, isn't that? The first thing you look at. Mm. I mean, don't forget there are rallies that run throughout the whole of Southeast Asia yeah. and of course those are timed at certain times of the year. So if this is an area that you're not feeling comfortable about, you could look to see if there is a rally. For example, uh, one that uh, leaves from Australia and it comes up through Indonesia and can continue on to uh, Thailand and Malaysia. And of course that is done at a certain time of year to take into account these winds and to optimize the best time for sailing. Because we, we should make the point, there is a lot of wind and there is a lot of sailing weather. I think sometimes when you watch our vlog, it appears as if there <laughs> isn't because we're quite often moving around at the wrong, in inverted commas, the wrong time of year. Um, but hopefully when we do leave here, we will be using the best winds possible. But yeah. there are plenty of winds. Yeah. And it's also why places like Phuket are so vastly popular with uh, cruising boats. Yeah, it's boats. great. And you can sail over there all year round mm. because even when the southwesterly is coming in across, you know, really hitting hitting you on the, on the west side, uh, there's still good sailing because there's lots of islands. You just go from one to the other to the other to the other. And when you get up north, it's fine. So... Uh, yeah, you can sail pretty much all year round, as long as you're prepared to use the winds. I would say down here, though, in um, Indonesia and the Sunda Islands, you are restricted a little bit more. Yes, I, I think so. And that, this is where we go back to, it's not just winds, it is current. Mm. So the, the Java Sea, which turns into the Flores Sea, has a set current that flows east to west and west to east at certain times of the year. Mm. So you don't want to be punching through that current sort of going northwards when you've got adverse winds against you. That, I mean, that could be uncomfortable. Mm. So the other thing to do when you're here is to talk to other yachties. You know, watch videos like ours that give you details of sailing in this area if you like, but better to actually talk directly to people about the situation, what they would do. Ask their advice if you really trust them, just see what other people are doing. If you find this topic interesting and would like to continue the conversation, come and join the Follow the Boat Discord community. Look for the link in the description, it's free. Let's talk a little about uh, navigating and navigation around these parts because it's, I wouldn't say it's, I suppose it is quite unique actually. It's quite different to a lot of the places we've sailed, not only the, the deep anchorages and the amount of coral reefs. Uh, something that perhaps people don't think about, sadly, is the amount of crap in the water. And I'm not just talking about plastic. Around places like Borneo, you have huge rivers that are dumping out massive logs and trees and branches and of course some of these float a little bit under the water like an iceberg and can be a hazard to navigation so you'll find that a lot of cruisers here tend to stick to day hops yeah if, if they can in those areas particularly I mean, borneo was bad we had huge mm. logs that we had to avoid also sulawesi was bad and round here we've seen them round round here some big ones coming down at the moment yeah Fortunately, around here, we have the option to do day hops, but mm. I really would recommend it. And it's quite unusual uh, to have people doing longer overnight passages around here. 
unless they can get right out, you know, get away from the coast, as, as far away from the coast as you can and get out into the deeper sea area and then they're less likely to hit things. But uh, there is a lot of stuff in the water and there's FADs, of course. Oh yes, fish attraction <laughs> devices. These are the big floating constructions that you'll see dotted around Southeast Asia. Some of them are tethered to the seabed. Some are actually built into the coral reefs and to the shore. Quite often they break their moorings and they uh, can be found floating out at sea. There have even been stories of fishermen stuck on them being found days later, weeks later, stuck mm -hmm. on these floating devices. Quite often these are not lit and they're certainly not going to be on AIS. So again, they're another hazard that you need to think about. Mm -hmm. But perhaps I think the biggest hazard is this, and that is, is that chart data cannot be relied upon as much as, say, the more well-documented places like the Mediterranean and the Caribbean. The number of posts I see on, see on Facebook from people saying, it's wrong, look, it's showing I'm over land, or it's showing I'm da-da-da-da-da. I mean, we've got so used to it now, it's, we don't even think about it. But when you first come here, it's a terrible shock to discover mm. how wrong the chart datum is. And there's no consistency to no. it because some places are very well charted. Mm. In fact, I'd say around, uh, around Lombok, it's pretty well charted, but mm. you don't have to go far for it to be completely out. Mm. And this is why, of course, we rely on satellite. Yes. And in fact, at the moment, we're having our chart plotter fixed. We've got a little problem with the one in the cockpit. So for the last few weeks, we have literally been using our phone. And rather than using, say, the Navionics app on the phone, I've actually been using my satellite app and just following the satellite images. Now, case uh, we are, of course, covering areas that we know anyway, mm. but Honestly, a lot of places in this area, you are going to be better off looking at the satellite. Ideally, combining your chart data with your satellite data. But... Yes, and using um, your eyeballs too. Mm. Um, so I would say the satellite is far more accurate. We have gone into lots of new places just using satellites mm. uh, because it picks out the bombies, everything. as long as you've got a good clear one. It is really, really good. And go in at the right time of the day so you've got the sun behind you and you're getting a great look through the water. If you're at the front spotting, you've got your polarised glasses on. So I just want to correct yeah, you. It's yeah. not the sun behind you, it's the sun above you. Above you. So yes. From, yeah. from 10 until 3 is normally yeah. the times that you can, any time before or after that, it's difficult to see the reefs. Because the water, the sun shines reflecting off the water mm. and you can't see through. But you need those good um, x-ray specs to help see through the water and get up high and spot as well. So with that, with, with your dodgy chart datum and with your satellite, you can pretty much go anywhere. And we get really in close, don't we? We do. I should also add that uh, the forum that you mentioned on Facebook, yes. uh, Sailing Southeast Asia, uh, don't be afraid to go on there and ask people mm. for waypoints if you're unsure about places. Uh, there are a few people that are collecting waypoints and uh, you can of course overlay them on your phone app or even on your chart plotter as well. I'd say use them as a guide because a sometimes guide. they're not right. Yes, as a guide only. Yep. Yeah, yeah. so um, lots, lots of ways to get around quite easily. Lots of things to hit if you're not careful. It sounds terrifying, doesn't it? But it's not. It does. It's like anything. You compartmentalise yeah. your passages. You take each day as it comes. Yeah. And if you're only doing day hops, you're doing, say, 30, 40 miles. And along the way, you can plan your entry into a tight spot. So, yeah. you know, it's not difficult. Now, talking of coming into tight spots, one mm. thing we should mention 
In this area, where it's different to say in the northern hemisphere around Malaysia, Thailand, other deep yeah. anchorages here, you would be surprised at how many deep anchorages there are, or should I say, how few shallow yeah, anchorages there are. Yeah, really, since we've left Sabah, isn't it? Mm. I'd say um, it's quite normal to be in 20 meters. That is our average, I'd say, wouldn't you? Yeah, I Sometimes would. more. Yeah, we've, we've anchored Seldom in 30 metres before now. 30, I think our, the deepest was 32, 33 metres. So you've but, got to carry a lot of chain. Yeah, and that was out of necessity, of course. Yeah. You wouldn't choose to anchor in those kind of depths. But uh, yeah, 20 metres definitely, I'd say, is your average. Yes, um, which is quite disconcerting when, you, when you're used to being between 5 and 10 metres. It's, uh, it's, it's a bit of a, a strange one. But it's fine, absolutely fine. Good windless, good chain, plenty of it. Good an anchoring technique. And you'll be fine, won't you? Hmm. Yeah, make sure you're behind somewhere not getting too much swell. That's the biggest problem, finding somewhere without too much swell and fetch. Well, I'd say the biggest problem at anchor, of course, are squalls at night time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we can talk about weather. Have we finished talking about is there anything else on uh, planning a passage that I did think of something else? I didn't write it down, did I, stupid woman? Um, yes, I know what I was going to say. So we have our passages planned in various levels. So we've got the long term, you know, the medium term and the short term. And even with the short term, you know where you want to go. You're here and you want to go there. You're going to do it in a day. It's going to be a right. It's going to take about six hours, whatever. But you've got to have contingencies. Squalls might blow up, as you just said. Uh, things may change. The anchorage may not be at all suitable. Um, so you've got to be on the ball and have you always have various anchorages mapped always, out always ready. Have contingencies. I mean, to be honest, this is how you should sail as a sailor anyway, yes. right? irrespective of where you are in the world. But yeah, contingencies are absolutely essential. And of course, expect to rely on those contingencies at three o'clock in the morning. Yes. Um, when the shit is really hitting the fan. Yeah. These happen very rarely, but they can happen, these situations, especially these horrendous squalls, which actually, it, it's not necessarily just about how uncomfortable it is for you at anchor. It could be that it's dragging a fishing boat that's anchored on his little rock, you know, 500 metres up the coast from you, and they can become a hazard as well. So, yeah, definitely always have contingency. Yeah. So do you want to talk a little bit about weather then? Um, I had written down here lightning simply because one of our discorders had asked about lightning and the one thing we always say, and I don't know if this is true, but we've, I got this fact years ago, is, is that Florida has the most lightning in the world and just behind it is Singapore no, it, and it's this whole true. area. That, yes, I remember we, we checked that, that mm. is true. Uh, Singapore around and we say around Singapore, I mean we, we mean the whole band, so all the way across over to Sumatra. Um, it's uh, there's, there's a lot of a lot of thunderstorms. I've lost count of the amount of times at night we have had to go straight into a lightning storm, and you have no choice, and you just have to go with it. And it, it's a risk. It is a risk. So people who live in the tropics, for instance, down in Florida, people in tropics all around the world, and that includes the Caribbean, they're used to lightning a lot. Mm. We're not in Northern Europe. We mm. don't see it as often as you do here. I mean, you almost see it every day, don't you? Oh, every day. And, yes. and it's not just the odd flash of light. It is someone flicking a light switch on and off, on and off. It, it's pretty hardcore. Do you like our coffee mugs? You can get your own from our shop. Find them at followtheboat.com forward slash shop.
Just one final note on navigation and the effects of nature. Hazards. <laughs> currents. We should just quickly talk about currents. They catch everyone unawares who have never been here before, ourselves included. In fact, when I think back to some of the earlier cruising we were doing in this part of the world, I realise now how strong those currents were. And I'm thinking when we first went up from Bellaton towards Singapore. Yes. And we went through these little group of islands and we took a left-hand turn to get up down a little side street, as it were. <laughs> and immediately Esper's speed picked up from three knots to six knots. And I panicked and quickly put the handbrake on, did 180 turnarounds just to get the hell out. Those kind of currents uh, happen in a lot of areas. These are well documented. Um, you can even use something like Windy to check the currents. But there are definitely areas where you should be very cautious of them. In particular, in the lower Sunda Islands here, between Bali, Lombok, Sumbawa, and Flores, especially around Komodo. These are notorious, but they're well documented. Yeah, 10 knots. But the other areas are places like around Borneo, for example. I mentioned earlier these huge, vast uh, rivers. Uh, they can also create a lot of current as well. And there were a number of occasions when we were doing our day hops and then turning to go in towards land to get to an anchorage, doing two knots. Yeah, sometimes even even less. Even less. I mean, it's very disconcerting. Mm. So important to have um, a well-found engine that's good and strong yep. and plenty of fuel. There was one occasion when there were, what, four boats, I think, and we had to get through this little passage as the tide was falling on a spring tide. And the first one got through effortlessly. The second one was slowing down. We were behind them and we found it a struggle. The last boat ended up having to dump his anchor right in the middle of this passage because uh, the current was going faster than what his engine could do. Yeah, he couldn't get anywhere. <laughs> So yeah, just be aware of that. Again, you know, research as much as you can, local information. If you can talk to the fishermen, if you can make yourself understood, they know it all. And the other little tip is watch what they're doing. Mm. They know what's going on. If you see them all suddenly fleeing back to land, not because it's the end of their catch, but because there's a cloud you can see over there in the distance, they know there's something big coming. <laughs> and so we, t we tend to follow them to where they're anchored and we'll an anchor amongst them. Everybody's laughing, they're all grinning, we're all waiting for it to hit. So yeah, they know what they, most of the time they know what they're doing. All right, so that is pretty much most of the giant puzzle when it comes to simple planning of getting your boat to move from A to B. That's the first bit of the giant puzzle. Second bit is all the other things that go with that. So I just want to quickly say on destinations in Southeast Asia, we're talking about three countries, but there are loads more. Within those three countries, there are some fantastic things to see like you would see nowhere else in the world. There are extraordinary cultures and ancient history, food, jungle, animals, anything, anything you fancy, take your pick, it's here. So don't forget that, it's not just about sailing. It's about finding places to go and visit, isn't it? Mm. Really mm. important part of it. So we've got really big tourist spots, like right next to us here, we've got Bali, uh, we've got Komodo up the road, and yet you've got whole vast areas where there, nobody lives. There's a group of islands in the north before you get to the Philippines called Halmahera Islands. No one's heard of them until you start getting here, and then there's a whole load of islands up there, nobody lives. We went to the Anambas Islands, and even when we talked to the Anambas, about in numbers to local people, they don't never heard of them. No, 
That's funny, that, isn't it? Yeah. A lot of people don't know it's part of Indonesia. Now, when you get here, of course, everyone knows the Anambas Islands when you talk to other cruisers. Yes. So, again, this is why it's useful chatting to other cruisers, either online or in person, because there is a wealth of knowledge here. Uh, but outside of that circle, um, there are many places that are uncharted in, in, in inverted commas. And I'm thinking of another one, uh, the, um, you know, around Sulawesi. Yeah. Uh, the islands that we went to, Togians. the Togian Islands. Yeah. Again, cruisers have been there, yeah. but it's not really a place that people visit. Not many. And we to get there, we went across the um, the sort of northern arm, if you like, of Tilliwedi. Underneath that, the southern boat, we went along that coast, and we went to a village there where they had never seen a sailing boat. Mm. We've come across that a few Twice, times. Yeah. Uh, other sailors have told us it's happened to them. It's yeah. happened to us a couple of times where the local people say it's the first time they've seen a sailboat. Even now, in 2024, can you believe that? And they are so magical when you meet these guys. Mm. The, the welcome is beyond, I don't, can't describe what the welcome is like. It gives you a massive warm feeling. It's great to do that. But of course, hand in hand with going to these remote places, which is what we like doing, are questions. So fuel, water, provisions, what do we do about all those? Yeah, that's a good question. Okay, let's talk about fuel first, because sometimes you may find you're having to do quite a bit of motoring mm. if you're catching the wrong season, which is what we tend to do. Yep. Um, fuel is available in most places. At a real push, if you end up on a remote island, you can buy the horrible cheap biofuel that the fishermen use, mm -hmm. but you want to make sure you take a lot of filters with you. Yes. Um, but there are, I can't remember the last time we actually brought the boat alongside somewhere. It was probably back in Kota Kinabalu, I think, Long time in, ago. in the marina. Two years. Most of the time years. you're running around with jerry cans, filling up jerry cans and casting backwards and forwards in the dinghy. So you do have that to contend with, which is why you see that we carry 10 or 12 uh, jerry cans on, on board just for those longer passages. You can always tell a liverboard and a cruiser boat against someone who's got a little day boat because ours are all covered in all kinds of things including mm. masses of jerry cans. That's clearly you're looking at a cruiser there. The other thing of course you're going to possibly be wanting to source is water but if you know us we know that we always say get yourself a water maker especially if you're uh, going to be a liverboard cruiser um, and you're going offshore, a water maker's almost essential. Because I'd say it, it's not a luxury, I think you're right, it's an essential. It is an essential, yeah. along with solar panels, uh, water maker. But having said that, water is available everywhere. And they tend to use these, uh, the big 20 litre plastic uh, bottles, yeah. uh, you know, for the water cooler. Um, and pretty much every town and village we've been to use these. So if they don't, if the local people don't have access to water, that is how they cart their water around and ironically as we sit here right now and have to stop every now and for a passing boat quite often it's the big water boat isn't it yes they they provide water to the islands on their boats so yeah you can always get water but it's very restricting if you don't have it if you don't have a water maker you are really restricted if you're in an uninhabited area then you can't get water you might be lucky enough to find a stream or something but i'm not sure i would drink straight out of any stream I'm never sure what's in there. You're never sure, are you? No. But I, I bet, I bet that in most cases it's potable. Probably, probably. 
Uh, finally, we should just talk quickly about food as well. Yes. Um, and I guess once you've got to Southeast Asia, you're probably an expert at uh, provisioning your boat and, and obviously filling it up with those foodstuffs that last a long time, the dried foods and the tins and the cans. I think we've done a whole uh, piece on that yeah. already, but yeah, it's fairly but, straightforward. But basically to summarise, as long as there is someone living ashore at the very least, you'll be able to get some eggs yes. and maybe some the odd uh, vegetable. Never been anywhere where you can't get an egg. Mm. And take a machete and you can do your own coconuts. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, there's lots of fruit growing on all the trees on all the islands, so you can do it that way. But more importantly, learn to fish. Catch yourself a lovely big fat mackerel. <laughs> and then you've got lots of lovely food. Yeah, so that's provisioning. There are just a, a few more things to think about. There's visas, of course, which is no more different to going in and out of a country on a plane. If you're going to do that, if you know how to get a visa, you not, sometimes you need to get it beforehand, sometimes you get it on arrival, depends entirely on your country, country of residence and where you're going to, blah, blah, blah. We have talked about that ad infinitum, and I'll put links to provisioning and visas in the description. Um, it's actually easier, by the way, than it used to be. People go on and on and on about how difficult Indonesia is. It's not difficult. And once you're in with your boat, you keep your boat here for three and a half years. You've got to worry about it. It's just you, you've just got to go in and out. Okay, let's not just, it's not just Indonesia, of course. So the, the, the common theme with all these countries seems to be that uh, your boat can stay in these countries longer than you can. Yes. In Malaysia, it's pretty much indefinitely. In Thailand, it's around 12 months, but you can apply to extend that. And in Indonesia, it's three years and three years maximum. Right. You yourself, of course, are the, person, the people that happen to move in and out. But the boat, um, it's less of a hassle. Yes, it's not the hassle that it used to be. So uh, don't let that put you off. Sorry for interrupting, but while I've got you here, if you like what we do and you want to support us and become a Patreon, or join us on FTB Mates, or even drop a quid in the rum fund, go to followtheboat.com forward slash pub. Of course, come to the pub. The other consideration when cruising around these parts are the lack of facilities in terms of boating. Uh, now, if you go to Thailand on the west side, and even on the east side actually, plenty of facilities around places like Phuket. Malaysia is pretty good as well, but uh, when you come down to Indonesia, boatyards are few and far between. So you need to have a well-found boat and you have to be confident in uh, all the operations on your boat to make sure that if your water maker does break down, that either you yourself can fix it or you have the part to deal with that. Mm. Um, and of course, if you need to haul your boat out, again, there are very few places in this part of the world where we happen to live now. Mm. So uh, you've just got to plan ahead and plan accordingly. But again, I don't think that's too different to a lot of places in the world. No, I mean, we've just been hauled out at Madana Bay, so there you go, you can do it at Lombok, or not, nowhere else really around here. Mm. Um, so, as you say, you have, you've got to be proficient yourself in dealing with most of the problems. So get a, well, yeah. I, I mean, you? I have to say, this is, uh, certainly in Indonesia, I've felt more isolated as a cruiser um, than places like Thailand. If you're based around Phuket area, it's a pretty comfortable spot to be because you know that if something goes wrong with the boat, there will be an expert somewhere close by. And there are loads of other yachts as well, aren't Of there? course, yeah. yeah. You're a bit Much more on your own when you start going, you know, to some of these uh, 
uh, places further out into Indonesia or even the Philippines, for example. Yeah, so if you're, if you're going to sail through the Mentawis off the coast of Sulawesi, you really need to make sure your boat's fine before you leave. You, mm. you don't want to be stuck out there. There's nothing, no one, no one to help you. So sounds difficult, but it's normal. And it's, as you say, it's not just here. It could be anywhere. Just before we finish, quick word on crime. This comes up a lot. It really surprises me that people are worried about crime. Is that because in your country there's a lot of crime? I don't know. It's not something that really has ever worried me, I have to say. Um, Indonesia's notorious for not really having much crime. Hmm. Not aware Pe of anybody. Petty crime in the tourist areas yeah. only. I mean, I've lost count of the amount of times Liz has left behind her phone yeah. or her wallet in a shop, in a restaurant, and you realise two hours later and you go back and it's either still there sitting on the table or the guys behind the counter have taken it and are yeah. waiting for you to pick it up. Yes, despite some of the reports you may have seen on some YouTube channels, I just think they've got it wrong. They've misunderstood what's happened. Sometimes the odd thing will happen where a dinghy might go missing or something out of a dinghy might go missing. Um, and usually you just need to tell the local bigwig or somebody local this has happened and it will magically reappear and that includes dinghies. So there's not that much theft at all. The people you need to look out for really are, are the yachties, mm. yeah, sadly, um, and tourists. There was a, you haven't seen this in, uh, on Facebook the other day, there was a picture taken from a boat, they had, their, they had a camera on their boat at night and it showed two tourists getting into their cockpit and trying to get into the door, this, that and the other. Clearly not locals. Mm. She's topless, they're all tattooed up, blonde, you know, and they were trying it on in this person's boat. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Worry more about this. I, I think this has a lot to do with how you carry yourself and your attitude. And again, this is something that is quite important in this part of the world. Um, these places are foreign, and, and I mean that literally in terms of uh, compared to your own culture and what you're used to back at home. So you have to be open to mm. these different cultures. And the worst thing you can do is to approach local people aggressively and defensively mm. um, because it just doesn't work in your favour. So you just have to be open, polite, kind and always carry a smile. Yes, and that's the same with boats, isn't it? They'll come up to the boat. They don't think it's rude even to get onto your boat, they think it's quite normal. Mm. Like you would go straight into somebody's house over here. There's, it, there's no sort of trespassing idea. Every, everything's everybody's. Uh, so you just have to do a firm no. I just want to contest that just a little because I think you're giving the impression that you can expect every passing boat to be climbing on board. No. You're, yeah. I'm that, not, that, I'm just saying that might happen. I that, think. Yeah. You know, that, again, that doesn't happen. People. They will hassle. If you're going to be hassled, it's people waving and shouting and, <laughs> yes. and taking photos. Hello, mister. I think that's the most hassle you're going to get being on a boat in an anchorage like this, for example. But otherwise, people leave you alone. You know? Yes, they do. Right. Well, I hope that that giant puzzle, um, we've addressed some of the problems that people might imagine there are over here. If you've got any more questions, please put them in the comments. Please talk to us about them on Discord, where we're happy to answer questions. It might generate a discussion that we can have between us. Any stories that anyone might have about being over here or planning to come here in the comments, we'll do our best to reply. Shall we just give a little summary if 
people want to just get a big picture of how to cruise around this area, I would say if you are if you come across the Pacific, obviously you know when to come across uh, the Pacific. Uh, in the Indian Ocean, the best time is to travel with the southwest monsoon, which is around June time-ish. Um, in the Northern Hemisphere, your best seasons are from January until April, because that's when you get the northeasterlies. So you want to be on the west side of Thailand and Malaysia. Uh, Equatorial areas can be very uh, unpredictable. And in the southern part, you have the southeasterly trades, which would take you up north. It's the main one, it runs most of the year. That yeah, one. or if you are coming down the other way, you can sail in those southwesterly monsoons, which is round about now, actually. Yes, well, it's, they call it the northwesterly here. Sorry, so, the, north, yes. the, the northwesterly, yeah. yes. Yeah. Confusing. <laughs> it is confusing. It is confusing. It is a puzzle, but like any good puzzles, when you start doing it, it starts to get a bit easier. And there are certain areas that suddenly are really easy. And then when you finish the puzzle, you wonder what all the fuss was about. Yeah. All right. I hope that's useful. Can I just throw in a little promotion completely separate to this yeah. about my little photography tool? Yeah. If they're still here, they're still hanging on. There is something very interesting here. Yes. On Sunday, the 21st of January, 2024, at 14.30, that's 2.30 in the afternoon GMT, I am going to be doing a Zoom online talk with the Royal Photographic Society, of which I've been a member for the last decade or so. And I'm going to be talking about travel photography, exploitation versus empathy, an open-minded approach to photographing people of different cultures. So I'm hoping it's going to be a very interesting chat about how Liz and I, and me specifically with my camera, approach all these different cultures. So it is kind of related to what we have been talking about, really. Uh, if you'd like to join, it's free. We'll put a link in the description. You need to book a ticket to attend. Uh, if you don't have Zoom, doesn't matter. You can stream it through your browser as well. But uh, it would be great if you could come along and, and watch that. I'll be watching it. I want to find out what he's been doing all these years. <laughs> all right then, thanks everyone for listening or watching and we'll see or hear you in two weeks' time. Bye.